following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. It's good to be here together, and uh, if you've got your Bibles, would you please go ahead and find those and turn to a book that God has used many times in my Christian life to strengthen me and breathe courage into my heart, and that book is the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the great book of Hebrews, which is all about the wonder and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so once you've found the book of Hebrews, just locate chapter 2. And we'll come to the passage and the text in just a minute. Uh, this morning, I'm kicking off the second leg of our Come and Adore preaching series, which will take us all the way to Christmas. And we have entitled this second leg of our series, Jesus Is. Jesus Is. And what we're going to do in this series is investigate the person of Christ by looking at certain titles of him mentioned in the New Testament. For example, Jesus is our bridegroom, or Jesus is our advocate, or Jesus is our older brother. So for seven weeks, Jesus is Jesus. And the intention and the purpose of this series is so that as we behold him, behold Christ and the wonder of who he is, we will be so mesmerized by our sight of him that we would come and adore him and in adoring him actually remain in him because that's the theme, the ministry theme for 2017, 2018. If you're new with us, the theme for the year is Romaine. And so that's the purpose and the intention of this series to do just that, to adore Christ so that we actually remain in him. And so today, we're going to reflect on and think about a title of Jesus that conveys so much that our hearts, as a response of kind of meditating on it, should be filled with such courage and bravery. And that title is Jesus, our champion. Jesus is our champion. So if you've got your Bibles open at Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to jump in at verse 10 and read down to verse 18. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists. What an amazing statement. Like like God owns all things. Why? Because he made all things. Should make the pioneer. Now here's the key phrase, the pioneer of their salvation. That term pioneer, archegos in the Greek, can mean champion. And that's, that's the word that I'm kind of using and employing this morning. The champion of their salvation, namely Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed, this is wonderful, to call them brothers and sisters. See, Jesus is our older brother as well. And we'll come to that later in the series. Verse 12. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Verses 14 and 15. This is where we're going to sit for the most part of this sermon. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. 
Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted too. Jesus is our champion. Let's pray. Father God, we still ourselves before you. And we, Lord God, want to open our hearts, Lord God, to receive your word. Because your word, as we've just read, not only created the universe, but also sustains it. And you, Lord God, breathe new life into our hearts, if we allow you to. And so I pray that that would be the posture of each heart and each soul here this morning, that we would be open to you and say, and saying to you, Father, God, please come, transform me, please come, change me. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, as you find our hearts open, would you do that? Would you do that, Lord? Would you change us? Would you touch us? Would you breathe your courage and bravery into each heart? In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, I, I remember it like it was yesterday, standing in the middle of a tennis court, fearing for my young life. I was, I was 14 years old, and I was playing outdoor five-a-side football. And the team I was playing for, it was quite a good team, we were playing a Pakistani team. And the Pakistani community in my hometown in England, they were the minority group. And it's often the case with minority groups, you kind of, they kind of stick together. And it was like this for the Pakistani community. Which meant, of course, if you picked on one, you were essentially picking on the whole group. And so I was playing this Pakistani team, and this Pakistani player, he tried to go past me with the soccer ball. I mean, that's what you do in sport, isn't it? That's what you do in soccer. Uh, but I don't like it when people try and go past me with the ball. I don't mind doing it myself, but when people try and do it to me, I get a bit antsy about that. And so this Pakistani guy, he tried to go past me, and so I did the most ludicrous, ridiculous thing. I swiped his leg from beneath him. Like I said, he went around me and I just kind of chopped out at him and it was like in slow motion because as he went down, all right, I knew instinctively what that would mean for me, big time, because all this guy's friends, the Pakistani community, they were surrounding the tennis court. I was trapped. They were surrounding me and they were looking at me and some of them were pounding on the fence, shouting out things like, you are going to die. And so there I was as a 14-year-old thinking, I'm going to die here today. And, and so I started to think, maybe I should just say kind of my, my own last rites. And so, Mum, Dad, you know, you've been great parents, but I'm, I'm going to die today. And so as I'm there, fearing for my very existence, my life, I kind of take a glance up at the crowd and it's kind of Pakistani, 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 Pakistani. And then I notice this guy that I was kind of, I, I knew, this familiar face. And it was the face of a guy called Gavin Richardson. Now, some of you are like, who the heck's Gavin Richardson? Well, let me tell you who Gavin Richardson was. He was the toughest guy in our town. I mean, you didn't mess with Gavin Richardson. He was big. He was a few years older than we were. And at the age of 12, right, he had so, so much testosterone, he had big choppers and a big goatee beard at 12. I mean, he was a thick guy, and every, everyone envied his goatee. And so he was a couple of years older than me, and he was the tough guy, and no one messed with him. And guess what? He happened to be the older brother of my good friend, Adam. Adam Richardson. Adam was tough, but nowhere like, like Gavin. And so I lock eyes with Gavin, and he's looking back at me, and he gives me that look as if to say, Louis, 
you don't have to worry about a thing. I've got your back. And immediately, instantly, the, the fear and the dread kind of just left my system, left my body. And I, I was replaced with courage and bravery. You know, and I played the rest of the game like on cloud nine, you know, kind of brave. And I managed to get out of that tennis court without a scratch. Why? Because of Gavin Richardson, who was my protector. You know, I'll fight for you, Louis, if need be. He, he in fact, was, was kind of like my champion. My champion. The, the ancient champions engaged in representational combat on behalf of their clan or their family or their nation or their friends. Just like Gavin Richardson was willing to fight for me as my champion. And our text this morning in verse 10, Hebrews chapter 2. The author mentions that Jesus is our Archegos, the the ancient champion, the champion of our salvation. Now, those who would have received this book, the letter of Hebrews, when they would have heard that read out to them, Archegos, they would have immediately, instinctively been reminded of the ancient champion, their king, their hero, David. King David, you remember him? All right, you know the story, David and Goliath, and, and they're the Israelites. They were like me in the tennis court, kind of, we're going to die, we're going to die. And all of a sudden, David steps up, you know, as the champion, says, I'll take on this giant and I'll overcome him. And you know the rest of the story. He did overcome him. And so when they would have heard this, Archegos, the champion, they would have thought, oh yeah, David. And what the author goes on to reveal is that Jesus is the ultimate king. He is the ultimate champion who went into combat for his people to win through his death, through his resurrection, certain blessings and wonderful things. And so we're going to be thinking about some of those things this morning. Now, before we do, before we come to it, before we consider what actually Jesus as our champion has won for us, I want to show you a quick clip from the movie Troy. Hands up if you've seen the movie Troy. All right. Okay, quite a few of you. And this is the opening battle scene, right? And it kind of pictures and conveys uh, the ancient champion really, really well. Now, it is a battle scene, which, which means, you know, I encourage viewers' discretion. Uh, if you have little kids, maybe do this. Uh, it's not gruesome, okay? It's not gruesome. It's not gory. But I think it just captures uh, the point that I'm trying to make here. So thanks, guys. you should have a war tomorrow when you're better rested. I should have you whipped for your impudence. Perhaps you should fight him. Achilles. Achilles. Look at the men's faces. You can save hundreds of them. You can end this war with a swing of your sword. Let them go home to their wives. Imagine a king who fights his own battles. Wouldn't that be a sight? Of all the warlords loved by the gods, I hate him the most.
champion. Pretty good, eh? Wow. Now that we've uh, got a better understanding, thanks to Brad Pitt, what uh, the ancient champions did, I guess we're, <laughs> we're better positioned to think about the implied question that our text picks up and answers. And of course, that question is, what did Jesus as our champion win for us? What did, he, what did he gain for us? What did he win for us on the cross? And so this morning we're going to be thinking about that. And once we've thought about that, I want to suggest to you how this reality of Jesus being our champion ought to impact and transform our Christian lives. So the what question and the how question. So what, what has Jesus as our champion won for us? Well, according to our text, two main things, restoration and liberation. Restoration and liberation. And I was going to preach on both of these wonderful blessings, restoration, liberation. But because of time and because I, I, I know that some of you are not into hour-long sermons these days, I, I thought to kind of drop the restoration part. Maybe we'll pick it up at a later stage. And so we're only going to fo- focus on the latter, namely liberation. Jesus, as our hero, as our champion, came to deliver us from forces, two particular forces, that we were utterly powerless to liberate ourselves from. And the first of these forces is found in verse 14. Listen to what our author says. He says, since the children, talking about us, the church, the people of God, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Now, this is one of the clearest texts in the New Testament concerning Jesus' full humanity. And it's a marvel. It's It's a mystery. When you consider for a moment, The eternal son of God, the maker of all things, the sustainer of all things, never had a beginning, never will have an end, taking on humanity, taking on human organs to himself, taking on flesh and blood, taking on skin and sinews and ligaments and a human mind for all eternity. That should blow us away. I mean, the incarnation wasn't for a period of time, it was forever, which, which means that human blood will forever flow through Jesus' veins. That's a staggering thought. He, he is the almighty, almighty God. Yes, he's 100% divine, but he's also, according to this text, 100% human. And we needed a full human being to be our perfect champion. And so this is what our author says. He shared in their humanity. Why? Why? So that by his death, that is Christmas is for Easter, by his death he might break or shatter the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. The devil. Now let me ask you, let me ask you, what, what power did Satan have over us? We think about pre-Christian days. What, what power did he have over us? Well, our author has just told us, the power of death. But, but what's that? What's meant by the power of death? Well, it's this. It was his power to accuse us and prosecute us in the presence of God and therefore demand a a, a guilty verdict, a verdict that was to end in the death penalty. And so this is how I I picture it to be, my kind of pre-Christian days. Satan kind of coming into the presence of God. You know, sneakily coming into the presence of God and saying something like, you know, your highness. You know, have, you, have, you, have you noticed Lewis? You've noticed him? He's got a sinful heart. He does sinful things. He certainly doesn't love you, your highness. 
lioness with all you, you know, his heart, mind, soul, and strength. But he certainly loves himself with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and that means that he's selfish and he's cruel. He's a womanizer. I mean, he, he, he cheats. And, and your highness, you, you know that you are just, right? I don't need to remind you of that. You're just and you're holy. And, and you've decreed in your word that the man or the person that sins must what? Die. Die. And so, so God, for you to be true to yourself and true to your word, the verdict is guilty, which means for this Lewis guy, he, he, he's to die. He's to be punished by you because of his sin against you. That's how it went. That's the power that he had over me before my Christian days and you as well before your Christian days. The power to come into the presence of God says, guilty, guilty, guilty. They deserve a death. But listen to me. He doesn't have that power anymore. He doesn't have it. Why, why, why? How? 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 Well, look, because of Christ. Because of our champion. Look, imagine this, if this helps. Imagine Satan coming into the presence of God and saying, uh, uh, by the way, your highness, have you considered Jesus? Never in a million years would he dare do that, right? Because he knows that Jesus lived an awesome, perfect, sinless, innocent life. But there's just no grounds for him to accuse Christ. And, and so now that we are in Christ, in the champion, the same is true of you and me if we're in Jesus. And so he doesn't even bother to accuse us. But here's the thing, the tragic thing, we often do it for him as Christians. Don't we? Come on. I feel so guilty than this thing again, Lord. And there's a place for repentance. But sometimes we accuse ourselves. And all the while, Satan's kind of you know, in the back, he, rubbing his hands together. I mean, he, he can't do that. And, but he doesn't have to sometimes because we do it for him. And yet we've got to understand that Jesus, as our champion, did what? Through his death, verse 14, he broke the power of him who had the power of death, namely Satan. He snapped it. He's broke it. Why? Because on the cross, he took your death. He took it. You know, a big kind of ugly guy in the door. You know, here comes Brad Pitt. And, and he just killed him. Dead, slayed. And that's accusation. That's Satan's accusation is over our life. Slayed and dead. And so no wonder why the, the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.8 that the reason why the Son of God came was to what? To destroy the works of of the devil, to destroy that. And so, and so he doesn't have a claim on us anymore because of the work of Christ. I want to turn to an Old Testament passage, uh, 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 Zechariah, because this, this is such a powerful picture of what we're thinking about here this morning. This is, this is Zechariah, and he gets this image and this picture of heaven. And it's not on the screen um, because it's not in my notes. I just thought about doing this uh, kind of this morning. And, and so this is, this is Zechariah, and he, and he gets this vision of heaven. But listen to what happens. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to what? To accuse him. Oh, just remember, you're not looking at the screen. Uh, to accuse him. And, and so you've got to get this in your mind's eye. So here's Joshua the high priest. He's before God, and right next to him is Satan. And Satan is there to accuse him. He's guilty, he's dirty, he's filthy, therefore he deserves your punishment, your, uh, he deserves death. But notice what happens next. I love this. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. In other words, Satan, shut your mouth. That's what, that's what the Lord's saying. Shut it. You don't have a right to speak in my presence. Why? Well, we read on. 
The Lord rebuke you, said, and the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man, Joshua, a burning stick snatched from the fire? He's saying, hey, I've rescued this guy from my certain judgment, from, from death. And so you don't have a leg to stand on, accuser. Now, verse 3, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, see, I pray that we would see this morning. See, I have taken away your sin. It's gone. It's atoned for, in other words. And I have put fine garments on you. And so Satan had to zip it. Because of the work of God. And that's exactly what we have in Christ, in the gospel. Amen. And so this is what Jesus, as our champion, liberated us from. This, this power of death, this, this accusation, this, this guilty verdict. They deserve the chair. Well, Jesus took the chair for us. And now he's alive forevermore. And so he's, he's got a zip it, the accuser. And so don't help him out, all right, church? Whatever you do, don't help him out. Because it's something that Jesus has powerfully freed us from. So that's the first thing that Jesus has liberated us from, the power of Satan, the grip of Satan to accuse us. But there's a second, and it's found in verse 15. Let's just back up a bit, verse 14 again, and get the, kind of the, the context and the setting. It says here, So that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and, verse 15, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their what? Fear of death. And so the second force that Jesus has freed us from, delivered us from, is this, the fear of death. Now listen, contrary to what many modern philosophers are saying and, and writing, the majority of people, the great majority, the vast majority of people, even Western, you know, sophisticated people, are still afraid of death. That they're terrified of dying. You know, despite the fact that philosophers say, hey, no, it's just kind of a part of life. You know, it's the, you live, you you die. It's kind of the the Lion King philosophy. If you if you watch the Lion King, you know, the cycle of life. You know, and the little lion is is taught. It's okay. You know, death is natural because you know, well, the grass grows and. The antelope, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you have watched the lion game. You know, the, the antelope, they come along and they, they eat the grass. And then guess what happens? Well, the lions come along and they eat the antelope. And then guess what happens? Well, the lions die. And then what happens? Well, they fertilize the soil and the grass grows. And guess what happens? Well, the antelope comes along and eats the grass. And then guess what happens? Well, the lion eats the antelope. And on and on and on. It's just a cycle of life. And so why fear death? Why get so kind of bent out of shape and bothered about it? Because this is a part of life, right? It's a biological necessity, right? You live you die. No big deal. But for the majority of people, it is a big deal. And why? Why do people fear death? Well, for two main reasons. People fear death for two main reasons. Number one, they fear death because of what it does to their relationships. It ends and terminates their love relationships. Look, what makes life truly meaningful? Isn't it love relationships? Relationships with your kids, relationships with your spouse, relationships with your friends, colleagues, parents. That's what makes life meaningful, right? And, and the more love relationships you have, the better your life. It's not in the accumulation of possessions, but it's, it's in the accumulation, I guess, of love relationships. And, and here's the thing. When you love someone, a part of yourself is in that person. And a part of them is in you. Which means when they die, a part of you dies, 
because they were unique to you, special to you. If you've, if you've lost someone dear to you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can't get them back because they were unique to you, one of a kind. And so when they die, a part of you dies. And over time, death comes knocking at the door of each of our love relationships. And one by one, they're removed from us until finally death comes knocking at the door of our lives and we are removed from those who love us and they're left grief-stricken. You see, this is why we fear death because we want love to last, don't we? We want relationships to last. We don't want our love relationships to be terminated, but in this life they are. And so this is why people are afraid of death because of what it does to their relationships. But there's a second reason why people are afraid of death. It's it's, it's what's on the other side of death, the uncertainty of what's on the other side of that chasm death, you know, the the great unknown, the the mystery. And so people are afraid because they're not too sure, not too certain. I don't know what's going to happen to me on the other side of death. The the Greek philosopher, 300 BC, uh, Epicurus, um, he he wrote this. He said this, men fear death. What men fear is not the fact that death is annihilation. It's kind of kaput, it's end. But that it's not. What men, what men fear is not that death, the fact that death is annihilation, but it's not. In other words, the, the fear that maybe there is something after death. And so often you find in the presence of death, in the shadow of death, people start to ask searching questions of themselves. Kind of retrospective questions like, you know, have I, have I lived a decent life? Have I been liberal and generous with my time and my energy and my and my money? Have, have I been good? Have I been a good citizen? Have I been a good family member? And of course, inevitably, the resounding answer to the, each of those questions is a resounding no. No, you haven't been a good citizen. You haven't loved as you ought to have. You've actually broken hearts. You've actually broken relationships. You've been greedy and you've been selfish. And, and you know, all throughout your life, you were kind of blaming others, blaming others. But now at the point of death, you realize I was at fault there and there and there and there and there and there. And so that makes people fearful in the presence of death because they're not too sure what's going to happen to them on the other side. It's, it's like this. You know, in the UK, and I know this happens in Australia as well, but in the UK uh, more so. When, sometimes if you're driving in uh, the country, like a country lane, you can be driving along, and all of a sudden you're hit with dense fog. It just kind of comes up. You know what I'm talking about, right? Just kind of dense fog. They call it pea soup. I don't know why, because, I mean, pommies are weird that way. It's a pea soup. And they kind of... And all of a sudden, you drive along and say, hey, this is a nice trip. And all of a sudden, dense fog. It's like, <gasps> you can't see anything in dense fog. Nothing. And the only thing you can do, and, and Stuart can confirm this, because uh, he's from the north and it's a lot colder up there, uh, and, is that you, you can only slow down. That's the only thing. You slow down. Put the brakes on, hoping that there's no one behind you that's going to kind of smash you in the back, kind of shunt you. And uh, that's the only way you can deal with fog, to slow down. Now, it's terrifying. And this is why, you see, a lot of people are terrified about death, because it's like driving blind. It's, it's like driving, not knowing what's going to happen. Driving towards death, not knowing what's going to happen. And here's the thing with death, you can't slow it down. It's coming for each person. You can't just slow down. No, no, it's coming. And so this is why people are afraid and terrified when it comes to death. But here's the good news. Jesus, as our champion, has liberated us from this fear. 
It's from the fear of death. Why? Because when we pass from this life to the next, that's not the end of our love relationships. It's the beginning of our love relationships. We will experience love without death. Love without end. And also, we're not to fear the uncertainty of what's on the kind of other side of death. No, no, because Jesus has gone into death and through death the other side. And he assures us that he's going to prepare a wonderful place for us. And so he is the first fruits. You know, he's overcome death and we too will overcome death in him. And so we're not to be afraid because he's overcome as our champion. Listen to what one writer says about this. I love the way he puts this. He says, the darkness of death swallowed Jesus. Now just picture that. Jesus, when he died, entering death. It enveloped him. The darkness surrounded him. And then listen to what he says. He entered it, but then he blew a hole out the back of it. It had no right to him because he was what? Innocent. We were the guilty, but he was innocent, dying as our champion, we may physically die, the whole kind of, you know, Lion King thing, uh, but death now becomes only an entryway to eternal life with him. Love relationships restored, not only him, with, with others as well who have loved him. I love this. All death can now do to Christians is to make their lives infinitely better. Wow. And so death has lost its sting. It's lost its teeth. It cannot affect us anymore because of Christ. He's gone through it and he's blown a hole in the back of it. He has our champion. Come on, should that give you courage? It should give you courage. You know, I love what one English guy had on his gravestone. He had engraved on his gravestone these words. You ready? Oh, what a meeting. <laughs> I told you English people are a bit weird. But he had that engraved. Wow. Oh, no, sorry. Oh, what a meeting. And the reason, true story, the reason why he had that engraved on his gravestone was because of his certainty that when he closed his eyes in death, the next time he would open them, he would see the champion of his soul. He would see Jesus and be welcomed into eternal glory on the new earth. And so it was like, whoa, whoa, oh, what a meeting, it's Christ. And so each of us should be filled with that same courage. Maybe not put it on your gravestone, but hey, have it in your heart. Oh, what a meeting. And so this is a good segue for us to think about how this reality of Jesus being our champion ought to impact and transform and affect our Christian lives. Are you ready for these two? These two, I guess, reflections or suggestions. Number one, anticipation. Anticipation. That is, since Christ, our champion, has overcome on our behalf, the deadly effects of death, the sting of death, the fear of death, we're to eagerly look forward to what is ahead. You know, fewer people has put it uh, more beautifully or in more stunning terms as the ancient, uh, 18th century pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. And he wrote, he was a Puritan, he wrote a little book called Heaven is a World of Love. And in that book, he describes and explains that heaven is not this kind of ethereal place where we're going to be kind of like floating around in disembodied spirits, kind of like Casper the Friendly Ghost, you know, playing harps and, and wearing bedsheets. Uh, it's not going to be that way. And Jonathan Edwards explains that, that heaven is a concrete place. That is, it's full of physicality, like our earth, but just perfect. Can you imagine? It's going to be awesome. And in the book, he, he, he describes and explains that what will make heaven heaven is the restoration of love relationships. Listen to what he says, quote, 
God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are united in infinitely dear and incomprehensible mutual love. And therefore, God is a, I love this, a fountain of love. Wow, just gushing out, a fountain of love. And this fountain of love is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. And so it overflows. Listen to this. This is what it's going to be like for all of us. Anticipate it. Become excited about it. So it overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight. Enough for all to drink at and to swim in. Yay. I love that. Yay, old English. Yay. So as to overflow the world, as it were, with a deluge of love. That's what we've got to look forward to. Are you excited? I'm just thinking about lunch. No, no, no. We need to anticipate this because there there'll be no sin. Gone. Kaput. No sickness. No separation from loved ones. No Satan. No accuser. Awesome. It's going to be glorious. And I, and I preached a sermon on heaven. And you can jump on the website and listen to it because I haven't got time to go through it now. But it's fantastic. And we need to anticipate it. And I know maybe what some of you are thinking or tempted to say, oh, yeah, this is pie in the sky when you die, right? Well, no, no, no. Well, my new lecture, New Testament lecture used to say at Bible College, this is steak on the plate while you wait. <laughs> steak, this hope. Wow, this will give you strength as you meditate, it, meditate on it. Because here's the thing, hope and love go together. Hope and joy go together. If you want joy in your Christian life, if you want to be more loving, then you need to be more hopeful. And, and this, this is what it's about here. This is what we're thinking about, being more uh, a people that anticipate the future. So that's anticipation. Secondly, determination. Determination. What does the Apostle John tell us in 1 John 4.4? 4? Anyone? You're looking up there. Yeah, I'm waiting for it. Come on, it's, it's, it's some of your, you know, your favorite verse. It's, it's, he who is in, come on, you can finish it now. In you, or in us, is what? Yeah, greater than who? He who is in the world. He who is in us is mightier or greater than he who is in the world. Now, you may have noticed, because this is kind of like a cheap shirt and you can see right through it, that, that I'm wearing... this. Chest there, sorry. <laughs> Should have shaved earlier. We, according to this passage, we have the spirit of the champion living in us. He who is in you, he who is in me, if we believe in God, we have the spirit of Christ who is the spirit of the champion in us, which means surely we shouldn't give in to doubt. Surely we shouldn't give in to selfishness. Surely we shouldn't give in to fear. But we should wage war with the spirit of the champion against injustice in the world and against a lack of love in the world, against our own selfish heart because we have the spirit of the champion in our hearts. Let me close with this story. There's a, there's a lady who comes... I'll just button up because I feel a bit kind of exposed. We've got a lady who comes to Fuke every Friday and she's often the first there and she's a dear old lady she's uh, Lebanese and I was speaking to her a couple of months ago and she was down I could see that she was a bit down no, normally she's quite bubbly you know jovial and say, hey, you know. 
Uh, but she wasn't this day, and I said, you know, is everything okay? I've, I've cut her hair a couple of times. I'm a hairdresser, by the way. No, I'm not cutting your hair. Um, but I was, I, was cutting, um, I was talking to her about her situation. She said, I- I've had cancer, and um, I've kind of overcome it, uh, but I'm still battling with it, and I've just had tests recently. And so I'm waiting for those tests. That's what she said to me, and that's why she was down, because of the uncertainty and because of the, the grief and the anxiety. And I'd been reading at this stage some, some things about, you know, Jesus being our champion, some of the things that we've looked at this morning. And I just kind of encouraged her. And I said, you know, Jesus is our champion. And he, he kind of you know, took our death and, and he's with us. He kind of empathizes with us as our, as our champion. And when I used, listen to me, there's no word of love. When I used the word champion, she started to weep. She started to cry. And then she told me, just this morning, it's amazing, she said, in a kind of Lebanese way, Lebanese accent. It's amazing. Just this morning, I was watching the Arabic Christian channel, and the preacher was talking about Jesus being our champion. Now, now look, I, I've been around church for a while, but I've never, ever, ever heard a sermon on Jesus being our champion. And yet here's this lady watching that morning a sermon on, on Jesus being our champion. And here's me about kind of half an hour later reminding her of, of Jesus being her champion. And she started to weep because God was doing a deep work in her heart. And now listen to this. Every time I see her, at food care. She says to me, champion, champion. And just last Friday, she came up to me and says, you're a champion. Amen. And so I pray that this message, this message about Jesus, this wonderful title, our champion, would have that same effect on our hearts, that we remember that Jesus is our champion, that he's overcome for us, and that we wouldn't give in to fear or doubt that we would overcome because he has already overcome and he is living in us. Amen. Let's stand. As we pray, it's fitting, it's right to encourage our hearts and encourage each other as we think about this reality. Oh, I pray. I pray. I pray. Oh, Lord. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord Jesus, you are our champion. And you freed us from forces we could never free ourselves from. We were bound. We were enslaved. Lord God, we were in dungeons of darkness and death and fear. And yet, Lord God, through your coming, through your dying, through your resurrection, you've you've liberated us forever, Lord, forever. And so I, I pray, Lord God, that you would take these realities and apply them to each of our hearts, Lord God. And that, and that we would sing, Lord God. That we would celebrate the, the victory that you have won for us, Lord God. And we won't allow ourselves, Lord God, to get down, down, down to the point where we just kind of want to give up, Lord God. But Lord, that you would remind us of the fact that you are with us and that you are within us as our mighty, mighty champion. Amen, amen, amen. Come on, let's, let's sing, let's sing, and then we're going to just have a time of a communion together, um, and, and we're going to do that, and then, and then obviously we're going to pray and, and close the meeting. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Anne.